Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 119th episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about universal design and why it's so important. And I'm talking about this because access and accessibility is a key part of equalizing society and the playing field. And universal design is all about the design composition of environment so it removes barriers for everyone, whether they identify as disabled, need space for a pram, prefer to use a ramp, are overwhelmed by strong stripped lighting or sound. It's about an environment or indeed any building, product, service within that environment to make sure it's designed to meet all the needs of the people who wish to use it. And it's not about special requirements and catering to a particular group, although that might come into it. It's really about thinking about design in a very inclusive way. So it's usable, it's convenient, it's a pleasure to use and everyone benefits. And it's the way in which we consider the diverse needs of our users and the abilities they may have and how that's a spectrum throughout the design process. So essentially it is anticipatory. It's not about, oh my goodness, we don't have this, we can't change the plans. But universal design always has that thought process process as the front and center so that services and environments will meet those people's needs. And in essence, universal design is excellent practical design. So let's think about this with some examples. How many times have you struggled to shut a public toilet door when you've had a bag? So sometimes airport toilets can be bigger, but generally I have felt very smushed into cubicles, even having a rucksack or when I used to travel around with a wheelie bag. And it really is a real dancing act sometimes. And then particularly for women's toilets, where you do have a sanitary bin that can add extra pressures and really badly designed. Or the music was so loud in a particular space, you couldn't have a meeting because the acoustics were really poor and they were bouncing off everywhere or the noise was amplified and you just couldn't focus on what was going on. Or indeed the lift was broken and you didn't have the energy to face flights of stairs. Maybe you were recovering from something, you've had a broken ankle before and it was a damp day and your ankle felt sore. And especially when there's no gender neutral or accessible toilets or the accessible toilets are not very accessible, which you often do get, or nursing expressing milk space that you need and it's not there. So I hope this shows that we have all probably experienced inaccessible design, therefore creating barriers. Now, universal design impacts and affects us all. And universal design assumes that the range of human ability is ordinary and not special. And those were words spoken by Elaine Ostroff in 2001, who was one of the co-founders and executive directors of the Institute of Human-Centered Design, which is a center in the US. So I will include the link in the show notes if you want to have a look at that. And we know that no two people, it's very seldom, I know identical twins could probably fit into this bracket, but even then, no two people are necessarily the same and have exactly the same ability. And when I say ability, I mean, we will have a preference also for doing things. And therefore, there is variation that exists between people. And this can be influenced by our bodies, but it can also be influenced by design and the way things are done. Think about the way in which we all like to have our homes. And when we go visit someone else, or when we when we used to, when it was easier to do that, 
it may think, oh, that's strange. Why do you do that? Or people talk about, don't they? I'm really frustrated with my kitchen because of this, that, the other. And I don't know it's going to cost a lot to get it changed. Because especially in the UK, I do feel that houses were not designed with this in mind. So ability can vary according to the type of activity in which a person is participating, as well as the environment, their own preferences as well. And so every person, as I've mentioned, will experience some kind of reduced functioning in their lifetime. So here are some examples given from the researcher and academic Molly Follettes and the industrial designer James Muller. And they say that, you know, think about things like noisy environments impair anyone's hearing, dimly lit rooms impair anyone's vision, and having the flu, or I think this is particularly pertinent with COVID-19 recovery and for people who are still battling, and I'm using that word intentionally, with long COVID, has reduced people's stamina. Now, people that have once run marathons are now struggling as a result of COVID to walk up a flight of stairs. And we don't know whether this is going to be temporary or permanent and what's going to help recovery. So, of course, universal design can mean that people can still access things and buildings in a way that works for them. And it's therefore about an appreciation of those varied abilities that every person may experience and design it in such a way that it can be used by everyone, regardless of age, size. You know, I know many tall people really struggle. People of a particular stature will really struggle with accessing uh, countertops and tables and kitchen counters, ability or disability, whether that's visible or invisible. So I really hope you're enjoying the content of this podcast. And if you want to keep up to date, then why not join my bi-monthly newsletter? When you join, you will receive a copy of my ebook, The Mentally Healthy Leading Manager. And the link is in the show notes. But just in case, it's bit.ly forward slash M-H-L-M-E-B-K-L-N-K. Okay, so let's delve a bit deeper then into inclusive design and what this actually means. How does it play out? And what can it look like? Now, there are actually seven principles of universal design, and I really want to share these with you. And I've taken this from a fantastic resource, which is the National Disability Association of Ireland, and I've included the link in the show notes. And if you go onto the website and you click seven inclusive principles, there's a fantastic PowerPoint presentation. And there are pictures on there. So you might want to have a look. And they've also sourced those pictures and they have used resources from the Institute of Human-Centered Design. So it gives examples. So the first principle is equitable use. So this part is about the design is useful and marketable to people with diverse abilities. And the examples are, and we have a real problem in the UK, particularly on the tube, many tube lines, when the tube train comes into the station and the platform and the famous slogan, mind the gap. So yeah, printed on t-shirts, really famous, uh, you know, great for London tourism, but it's really, really bad for wheelchair users. It's really bad for anyone who has uh, pushing a child in a pram because those gaps mean really struggle to get on the platform. And actually so much of our London underground is inaccessible and unusable to wheelchair users. I also think if I had were on crutches, I would really struggle and I probably would avoid the tube. So thinking about that. Then the second principle is about flexibility in use. So how the design accommodates a wide range of individual preferences and abilities. Really simple example is right and left-handed scissors. And left-handers really struggle with things because, again, things are designed for the dominant and dominance can be seen in right-handed, right-handedness. 
things around height adjustable desks. And, you know, I'm really lucky that I've got a height adjustable desk and they're absolutely brilliant. But of course, the argument is in workplaces, in our usual workplaces, it costs too much. But if everyone had one and we all bought them, and there might be some things around sustainability, but I do think they can be overcome, that that would just be really useful. So it's good for everyone. So whether you can't sit down for back pain, whether you prefer standing up, temporary ill health, which means you have to sit down more or the opposite. So thinking about that flexibility and adaptability, how can things be changed, shifted, altered? How can right-handed shears or scissors, maybe the handles can be flipped around in some way quite easily. Now, those are tangible examples, and you might not be a product designer, but thinking about that flexibility in use, it could be a meeting space where people also want to do quiet work. Then the third principle is about simple and intuitive to use, so that the design is easy to understand, regardless of the user's experience, knowledge, language skills, or current concentration levels. And I think smartphones are quite good at this. You know, you see people's two-year-old children and they think, how on earth did they get into my, you know, into my iPad or into my smartphone and um, they've accessed this app? So it is interesting how intuitive that, that they are. And I know children can often navigate uh, smartphones much better than adults. Principle four is about perceptible information so that the design communicates necessary information effectively to the user, regardless of the conditions or the user's sensory abilities. So thinking about easy read could be an example of that um, and how that supports people, how lighting might accentuate signs, make sure that people are aware of, of things around them. So how the, the, the sensory environment can really contribute and support people. The fifth principle is about tolerance for error. So this is around designing things that minimize hazards and uh, potential adverse consequences of accidental or unintended actions. Uh, so what are the ways in which I think that, you know, train the Jubilee line, they have those double doors. I think that could be an example of minimizing hazards and can be really useful. Principle six is about low physical effort so that the design can be used efficiently and comfortably with a minimum of fatigue. So it's not exhausting to reach up. You know, I think about Again, going back to kitchens and kitchens that are not accessible generally in this country, in the UK, for wheelchair users. So I think our countertops can be quite high. I think if someone then acquires a disability, which means they then need to use a wheelchair, struggling to reach up to cupboards and it's exhausting. So think about a really simple example, arthritis, osteo or rheumatoid arthritis, opening jars. So they're not really easy for many of us who maybe don't have arthritis at the moment, but they're really difficult, really, really painful. Simple things, you know, the height of light switches, all of these things are so exhausting, actually, if we are not of a particular, it's not assumed that we have a particular way of doing things. And then principle seven is about the appropriate size and space that needs to be provided for approach, reach, manipulation and use regardless of user's body size, posture or mobility. So some examples are around accessible gates and thinking about public transport and how you know people don't have to slow down. Gate has multiple smart card targets to help that. And there's a particular line in Japan that does this. Thinking about the interior of trams and how light railway can open up for people at different levels. So it does link, I think, to the should have low physical effort, but of course there should also be size and space provided for different uses. So I found that super helpful. And um, I think to start thinking about this is really, really useful. Well, so what can you really do then to create this environment in the workplace? And as I said, the first thing is it's not just about 
thinking, okay, well, we don't have anyone who's put in a workplace or reasonable adjustment request, so we can just carry on. It is about thinking, okay, let's look at the design. Maybe let's get some feedback, get an expert in um, to look at what's happening and how could we make this better? Because I'm sure what you'll find is whether some staff have declared a disability, it could be to do with workplace preference. I mean, I think before the pandemic, there was so much wasn't there around agile working and hot desking and what that meant and how some people loved hot desking, some people hated it and it can cause a lot of anxiety. So thinking about that, first of all, and it is called anticipatory duty. Then starting to think about, right, this is environment has got some, creating some barriers for many people for a lot of reasons. So how do you then start reducing those barriers? And I want to be clear, it's not about shutting an office or saying, right, everything's going to be ripped out. We can also think about the fact that people are working in a hybrid way. Some people are still wholly at home. Some people are in the workplace. How could we also help people to identify barriers in their home or things that are tricky for them and think about, well, let's provide a, a sort of a fund or pot of money that people can apply to or that we can say, right, we're going to try and make your work environment as comfortable for you as possible, whether you're at home or working in the office. So the workplace should really be able to go through those seven principles, inclusive principles. I think, you know, if you want to get a specialist in, that's probably a good idea and start to create and remove those barriers, knowing that you might not be able to change everything. I know lots of offices are leased. This is, again, not something that's thought about. It's not always easy if you're in a building that you don't own to change things, but there will be things that you can do. If you're planning to move or create a new building, this is essential. So to start from the off and really think about how do we want to make this space as accessible. And there are lots of things I haven't mentioned. So the other thing I hadn't mentioned actually was a contemplation space or a multi-faith prayer room. Those things are so important and it can just be a room. It can have a cupboard with different icons available for people to use, talk about stuff about what might work. And many people have worked in very accessible environments, so they can probably add and shape how that goes forward. But I know that contemplation or faith spaces are the first to get taken away when space is required and I think it's also essential to think about a nursing uh, parent space for ex expressing milk sometimes people are able to bring their children into work or if someone uh, works part-time and then maybe they have to pop back to the office and they need to feed you know these things are really really important thinking about how your meeting space is designed, if people are lip reading, the eye contact element of it. T-loop technology in offices don't necessarily keep up with the hearing aid technology that people have. So often you'll have a T-loop, but it doesn't really match someone's hearing aid if it's on infrared or uh, if it's got a different system. So it's really important to keep up with that. Check your T-loops, check all of that. Thinking about space, of course, that, that's an interesting one, isn't it, right now with the social distancing. But going forward, if we, it ever goes back to how it used to be pre-COVID. We need to stop cramming people in. So you know, what does that look like? Glass is great and revolving doors look fantastic. They are a real nightmare is my understanding when I've spoken to colleagues with visual impairments for trying to get through. They, are, they might look lovely, but they really are not great. So what are the other ways in which people can be um, welcome into a building? Thinking about handles and, um, you know, door handles that's really important going back to the point about arthritis really difficult can be can be really difficult to twist handles so what are the easiest ways you can do that um, and thinking about also you know handles that can be open with elbows and things I think that's that's also quite useful to con consider quiet areas or areas that are uh, 
more calm thinking about like you have autism hours in, in um, grocery stores or autism special screenings it's really important to think about how that can be built in it can be really small things it can be creating a barricade with cupboards if that's what people want a blind a curtain um, and I've also included in the show notes a link to um, employment autism which goes into some really helpful detail around how you can create universal design or accessible spaces for people who have autism or on the autism spectrum. I think it's also really useful, this gets forgotten about acoustic. Maybe we've experienced more of it over the last 20 months, thinking about how people have echoes um, in their homes. You know, our homes aren't really designed for this, but, you know, acoustics aren't great when we're in the workplace. So how can we think about the sound absorbing or uh, how sound is going to bounce off hard surfaces? Can we include some surfaces that are going to absorb the sound? That is so, so helpful for people. And I think something that gets forgotten about so often. You know, how accessible are plug points, <laughs> uh, particularly around desks? It's not great when people have to crawl on their hands and knees. I know sometimes it has to happen, but going forward, you know, what are the ways that can be done? Uh, space between desks. Now, this has become better, of course, with COVID, but I know that hot, hot desking or you know desks in a row, banks, it isn't great for navigation if anyone is a wheelchair user or they're on crutches temporary, permanently, or they might have any other mobility impairments. Walkway, and some of it links to health and safety, doesn't it? So it's, it's common sense around keeping walkways clear, minimizing clutter, Carpet can be a really good way to facilitate self-guided wayfinding, particularly for any colleagues who are visually impaired and have a white white cane that they use. So there is, a, you know, a lot that can be done. And I've just mentioned a few things. And, you know, in essence, universal design is, is about striving to improve things and make things better for everyone. So if you care about equality, diversity and inclusion, this is such an essential part of it. It is not about singling out a group or saying, oh, yeah, we've got one member of staff with arthritis. We've got one member of staff who has diabetes and needs a quiet space to use insulin. Yes, that's going to be really helpful for them. But if we think about this in an anticipatory way, what you'll find is that everyone will experience some kind of barriers. And of course, the likelihood of people who identify as disabled, there is an increased chance they will experience more barriers because the society is designed for those who are non-disabled. But why do we want to wait? Universal design is exciting. It can be really innovative with it and it can have a very high appeal and aesthetic value to it. It's much more than a design trend. And of course, go and win awards if that's what you want. Brilliant. But this really is about integrating and putting your money where your mouth is in terms of equality, diversity and inclusion. We talk about accessibility, but of course, there's also usability. And that is absolutely essential. It's also goes beyond simple compliance. And I think compliance is super important. Don't get me wrong, but often it can be the very minimum. And you might know that from all the different uh, accreditations and things that you do in the workplace. So standards are great. You know, yes, we meet health and safety standards, but of course, they're, they're the other standards that you can reach and go much higher with. And why not do this? It, it makes it really clear that you are an accessible, approachable, adaptable and agile workplace. I think also remember procurement and purchase purchasing power. So if you're leasing a building, um, depending on your relationship with the landlord or the development or the property agency, have a conversation about this because it is incredible how this should be so widely known. It should be integrated, but it isn't really. I mean, I, I came to Universal Design in 2012, so that's not even 10 years yet. And this has been something I'm really, you know, it's, it's kind of a hobby, but a passion as well. 
And universal design, it's not just about, it's got to be a specialist. Now, by all means, absolutely work with a specialist, but there are things you can look up and read and the things I've made reference to in this episode, and you can start to implement these things quite quickly and they don't have to be expensive. And of course, finally, it's not about, you know, one of my favorite phrases, don't you? One size fits all. And it's also not a one and done. This is an iterative process. It is about saying, okay, there are going to be commonalities. Things are going to emerge. Things develop. People, when they feel comfortable, they start talking more. So this is also a way to make things approachable and open and a positive way and really putting equality, diversity and inclusion into practice and it not just being, oh, we have a policy, isn't that lovely? And we're waiting for someone with X condition to come in through the door. So I really hope you found this episode useful. As you can tell, it's something I feel really passionately about because it's practical and it can be really straightforward and it can really get people engaged. So the resources are the Universal Design from the National Disability Association of Ireland. Fantastic website there. Morgan Lovell, Universal Design. They've got a great piece about offices. Employment Autism, Inclusivity and Universal Design, and Pragya Agarwal's great article in Forbes, How Do We Design Workplaces for Inclusivity and Diversity? So if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I'll see you in the next episode where we're going to be celebrating more and talking more about Disability History Month. Until the next episode, I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.